Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. During the Armenian genocide in 19, from 1915 to 1917, 1. 1.5 million Armenians were murdered by the Ottoman Turks, with millions more brutalized, dehumanized, and forcibly deported. In the midst of this horror, there's a story told of a Turkish army officer who led a raid upon the home of an Armenian family. The parents were killed and their daughters were violated. The officer kept the oldest daughter for himself while his sisters were passed on to other soldiers. This eldest daughter managed to escape eventually and trained to become a nurse. In an ironic twist of fate, she ended up working at a ward for wounded Turkish army officers. And one night as she was performing her duties, she recognized a patient. It was the Turkish army officer who murdered her parents and abused her and her sisters. Now this girl, who's now a woman, could have deliberately be, been negligent in her duties as a nurse and actively work against his recovery with the goal of seeing him die. She didn't do that. Instead, she gave him exceptional care. As the officer began to recover, a doctor made him aware that if it hadn't been for this nurse, he would have been dead. The officer looked at the nurse and, and asked, have we met? She replied, yes. And she began to explain. After a long silence, the officer asked, why didn't you kill me? Why didn't you kill me? The nurse, who's a Christian, replied, I'm a follower of him who said, love your enemies. Brian Zan, in his book, Radical Forgiveness, writes, if Christianity is to be a compelling and relevant voice in the 21st century, it needs a fresh message. Not a new innovation or novel interpretation, but a return to our roots. And he argues that, that, that one of the roots is forgiveness. And it is hard to disagree with him. Isn't forgiveness at the heart of the gospel message? And that's the subject that we want to look at this morning as we continue our sermon series on the gospel of Luke. This morning we're looking at Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. It's up on your screen, that passage. Jesus said to his disciples things that caused people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Jesus replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. 
Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? And after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have done, only done our duty. Most commentaries view the passage that we've just read as a series of miscellaneous unconnected teachings on different areas of discipleship to do with sinning against others, forgiveness, faith, and service. Uh, many of these commentators say that, the, that any link in these four areas is tenuous at best. There's another school of thought, and it's a minority view. Commentators in the school of thought say that there is a link that verses 1 to 10 is a unit, and I happen to be one of those. And I've read it several times, and that's the conclusion I've come to, that there is a logical flow, a discernible link that exists between what appears to be four separate themes of discipleship. I'm going to go out on a limb, furthermore, and suggest that there is, in fact, one theme, and that theme is forgiveness, the central plank of the Christian faith. See if, you disagree, see if you agree or disagree as I go along. But if you disagree, that's okay. Be assured, whatever position you take, we will, not, we will land not too far from one another in terms of the meaning of the text. So let's unpack the passage, starting with verses 1 through to 3. Speaking to all of his disciples, Jesus draws their attention to an inevitable reality about being in, uh, being in Christian community or being in the world at large. And that is, we will sin against each other. We will sin against each other. We will somehow, at some point, at some time, offend one another, do things to one another, say things to one another that are not going to be pleasant, they are going to be hurtful. The phrase, things that cause people to stumble or sin, translate scandal in Greek, refers to offensive, very offensive actions that cause people to fall away from their faith, especially the little ones. The phrase little ones refers to believers vulnerable to damaging words and actions, but also the poor uh, who have not yet believed the good news. They can be included in the little ones as well. The sin is so severe in Jesus' eyes that potential offenders would be better off dead before they're able to commit such an act. Unless they, unless we think that we're not capable of such a sin, Jesus issues a stern warning in verse 3, part A. Watch yourselves. Be alert that you could be perpetrators of a sin like this, causing young and vulnerable Christians, uh, young and vulnerable seekers to stumble, to lose interest in their faith. Verses 3, part B to 4, but equally serious and important is the commitment to forgive people of sin against us, Jesus says. Just as poison wrecks the body, 
so does sin. And just like the physical body is in need of repair and healing, so does the body of Christ. The one who has committed the offense must be rebuked, and repentance is expected so that forgiveness can be extended. Jesus makes it clear, though, that in forgiving someone, God is not asking us to turn a blind eye to acts of wrongdoing or to be in denial of acts of wrongdoing. It is not okay to be wrong. It is not okay to be wrong. Christian forgiveness does not mean that we go around and say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. We're not to retaliate. When Jesus says, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the left, he's not saying, whack off. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. That was sweet. Why don't you have another go at my left cheek? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't retaliate. So it is not okay to be wrong. Pretending about being hurt from an act of wrongdoing will not cure your pain. It will only worsen it. With time, your wound will get better. That's not true. If your wound is not receiving attention, time will only make it worse, not better. So sweeping things under the carpet, pretending... It's not going to make those wounds go away. It's just going to make it worse. Anger towards acts, acts of wrongdoing is normal and justified, no matter how mature you think you are in the Lord. As N.T. Wright brilliantly sums up, forgiveness does not mean I don't mind or it didn't matter. I did mind and it did matter. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything to forgive at all. Make sense? But Jesus is also telling offenders that the teaching on forgiveness is not to be taken as a license to sin. Summed up in this saying that I've heard people use, it's much easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. That statement riles me. It's much easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission because we are Christians. Let's just go ahead and do that very thing that we know it's not the right thing to do. It's not ethical, but it's much easier to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Then the matter of how often you forgive. Jesus answers in verse 4. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. In Matthew 18, 22 this is Jesus' answer to Peter, asked the same question. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. They both mean the same thing. It is a figurative way of saying that forgiveness is to be offered, even to repeat offenders who repent. In other words, forgiveness is a lifestyle, is a way of life for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Verses 5 to 6. The apostles in response say to the Lord, Increase our faith. I want to suggest to you the phrase, increase our faith here, is a cry to the Lord for help. Why? Well, they've just been told that if they're true followers of Jesus, they must commit themselves to forgiving those who offend them, no matter how hard it gets. 
And forgiving people sometimes, in some instances, is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Anybody knows what I'm talking about? Incredibly hard. And I don't know if you've ever said to the Lord, why should I forgive this person or that person? How can you even ask that of me? Lord, if I'm honest, I don't know if I can forgive this person now or forever. I'm willing to wear the risk of standing before you in judgment day and hold on to this bitterness that I have. The the apostles, I reckon, were expressing something similar here. Lord, this teaching is hard. What you're asking of us is hard. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us, Lord, to trust your character and your ways. That even though we don't understand, now, wherever, why are you asking us to forgive someone that we would rather hit and smack and hate for the rest of our lives? We choose to trust you. Help us trust you. Help us trust that your instruction is right, even though we can't see it just yet. The instruction to forgive those who offend us and hurt us deeply. Now, verses 7 to 10. Have you ever done something you feel like you deserve a medal for? Something really hard, something really challenging. And you feel like, God, I deserve a medal for this. For decades, I served with an international missionary agency called Youth for the Mission, the largest in the world. I believe. And that was the reason I left Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia for Brisbane in 1983 as an 18-year-old. For those of you who don't know, even though YRM is the largest or one of the largest mission agency in the world, they're staffed by volunteers, meaning that you don't get any salary for the work you do in youth of the mission. In fact, you have to pay your own way. You have to raise your own support and pay your own way. Tough gig. Hey, you work, you don't get paid, and then you have to pay your, you raise money to pay your own way. That's where I met uh, Sue in 1989 in Youth with a Mission. Uh, the following year, we got married. Now, while on our way to a park to get our wedding photos done, we lost a photographer. Disaster. Now, in those days, there were no mobile phones. Well, the average person didn't own one unless you were rich. I was hopping mad in the car uh, as we drove to our reception. After waiting for a while, we realized, yeah, the, the photographer does not know where we are and we don't know where he is. So let's go back, go to the reception. Maybe we will see him there. So on the way to the reception, I was angry as because we hadn't had our wedding photos taken. And I said to God in my heart, just in my heart, working in youth with a mission was your idea, not mine. I only did it because you asked me. I obeyed because you told me to do this. And in doing so, I made so many personal sacrifices to serve you in YWAM. I gave up my culture. I gave up my family. I gave up studies, I gave up the, my, my income earning potential, the best years of my life. 
serve you. And all I ask in exchange for my obedience is for my wedding day to be perfect. That's the least I deserve, Lord. And you can't even deliver on such a simple request. Thanks, God. It was all in my head. But it must have shown on my face. Because the flower girl who was in front turned around and said to me, Mark, why are you so sad and angry on your wedding day? Turn around, Naomi. (laughs) Verses 7 to 10 address this very self-entitled attitude in which we think we can bargain with God and make demands of God because we've obeyed him, like we've done him a huge favor. You know what I'm talking about? I did this, I did that, I gave up, I gave this up, I gave that up. This was such a huge sacrifice. You owe me. It's about time you do something good for me. Jesus says to us, and I'm paraphrasing here, the lifestyle of forgiveness I'm asking you to practice is challenging and costly. But at the end of the day, I want to remind you that in living this way, do not think you're somehow special. Do not think somehow you're doing me a huge big favor. Do not think somehow you deserve a medal for this. You've merely done that which is right and expected of you. That's all you've done. Now, does God appreciate us when we obey him? Does God appreciate us when we do what he asks of us? Of course he does. He will say to us one day, as illustrated by Jesus in the parable of the bags of gold in Matthew 25, 21, well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So there, right there in in, in print, God does appreciate us. God will express his deep appreciation to us for what we do for him. But he wants to remind us. And he wants us to remember that when we do obey him, we do so without any strings attached. We do so without any sense of entitlement. Yes, he does appreciate us, but don't get the idea that you're entitled to special favors because you've made sacrifices for God. Let me, in conclusion, make two points about forgiveness. No matter how hard and costly forgiveness is, and it can be, forgiveness is a non-negotiable if you're a follower of Jesus. Forgiveness is a non-negotiable if you're a follower of Jesus. Why? Let me give you two reasons at least. And it's not because God is God and we are not. That's not the reason. Forgiveness is non-negotiable reason number one. We're fallen beings who live in a fallen world. And one of the things this means is that we are bound to hurt one another in some way, at some point, at some time. Even though you don't set out to hurt people, you will hurt people. Spouses don't set out to hurt each other. Spouses don't set out to say mean things to one another, but we do, don't we? 
that we end up having to apologize for. This is life. We're going to hurt one another, and we have to deal with it. But very often when we are hurt, especially deeply, we think that there are only two options before us. The offender must pay up in some way for the act of wrongdoing committed against me. And if they can't pay up, then they must be punished. That's how we often think in terms of options available to us. But what if the offender doesn't see anything wrong with what what they've done? What then? Let alone apologize, right? If your future is determined by someone apologizing, then you're stuck. Because that person may never apologize. Then what are you going to do? See, we can't adopt such an approach to acts of wrongdoing committed against us without damaging ourselves in the process. The walls we inevitably will build up to keep people out also keep us in prison. We may never experience hurt again by building up these walls, but we will also end up starving of love. There is no future with a life marked by bitterness and hatred. There is a third option, one that empowers us to rise above the wrong committed against us, and it is forgiveness. And this leads us to the second reason why forgiveness is a non-negotiable. Forgiveness is for our freedom. It is for our own good. Hebrews 12, verse 15 See to it that no one misses the grace of God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Our bitterness will inevitably impact our relationship with God and others, in other words. Brian Zan, words are very insightful. You may get even. You may achieve payback. You may gain your revenge, but you will forever be chained to the injustice done to you. You're in danger of forming your identity around your injustice in such a way that it forever shapes your future. Even if you get even, you will still drag that ball and chain with you. And looking for an opportunity to be cruel to the person who was cruel to you, you will become a cruel person. And in becoming a cruel person, your cruelty will in all likelihood not be limited to the person or persons who have treated you cruelly. In seeking the opportunity to repay cruelty with cruelty, cruelty will become your identity, your lifestyle, and your character. Tragically, you will do the very thing you hate. You will inflict cruel injustice upon others. Worse yet, you will become the very thing you hate. This is how evil perpetuates itself. Very profound. You can unpack that and make several sermons, preach several sermons on that. The second point is true forgiveness that refuses to let hate and bitterness have the last word requires trust or faith in God. It is worth noting that when we, when, that we process acts of wrongdoing committed against us differently from one another, just like grief, 
depending on our personality, depending on our upbringing, and so on and so forth. Furthermore, forgiving someone, for instance, for sexual abuse, would be way more challenging than forgiving someone for telling a lie. This means that we cannot apply a one-size-fit-all process to everyone across the board. Doing so can bring harm. An example of this is when we say to someone who has been sexually abused, you need to forgive your abuser. And if you don't, Matthew says very clearly, you won't be forgiven. The Lord's Prayer says, we forgive as God forgive us as we forgive others. That is damaging to a person who has been sexually abused. See, sometimes people need healing before they can reach a point where they can forgive. Forgiveness is the goal. But how we get there and how long it takes for people to get there will vary from person to person. The starting point is not the same for everyone and for every offense. Then there's the the matter of the definition of forgiveness. What does it mean? What does forgiveness mean? Let me begin with what forgiveness isn't. It does not mean, as we heard earlier, turning a blind eye to and being in denial of acts of wrongdoing. It is not okay to be wrong. Forgiveness is not absolving the guilty party of responsibility. It is not pretending or ignoring your anger and pain and hurt. Forgiveness is not synonymous with reconciliation. A woman in a DV situation needs to move toward forgiveness, but this doesn't mean that she's to go back to her abuser. They're separate things. The same with people who have been sexually abused. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. The same principle applies to trust. Forgiving someone does not mean that you are required to trust that someone immediately. And this is just an illustration. Mandy is our treasurer. If Mandy abuses a position as our treasurer to line up her own pocket, she needs to repent first of all. Not just simply acknowledge that she has lined up her own pocket, but really show remorse and repent. And then as a community, we forgive. But then we have the option of reinstating her or not. Yeah? If we choose not to, it doesn't mean that we haven't forgiven her. They're two separate things. Does that make sense? Two separate things. So what is forgiveness then? Let me offer you this definition. To forgive is the decision we make to give up our rights to be judge, jury, and executioner. To leave our hope for ultimate justice with God. That's what forgiveness is. A decision we make to give up our rights to be judge, jury, and executioner. And leave our cry and our ultimate sense of justice, our hope for justice with God. God One day I will see your justice, but I'm not going to make things happen. I'm not going to be the judge, jury, and execution. I have no right. I have no moral rights to be that person. I'm fallen. I'm fallen. I'm in no position to be judge, jury, and execution. I leave that with you. So as you can see, forgiveness is complicated or can be complicated and can be costly at the same time. It can really stretch our friendship with God. But we must keep faith in God and pray like the apostles. Lord, it is hard. I don't understand why I need to forgive, 
but I'm choosing to trust your wisdom. I'm choosing to trust your counsel. I'm choosing to trust the pathway you have laid before me. Help me get there. Increase my faith and my trust in you. And the cross upon which Jesus hung, where he offered forgiveness, will be the catalyst that will get us there. We commemorated that in communion this morning, and we will do so again next Friday at our special service, remember, starting at 9. But isn't forgiveness why the cross of Christ is not remembered only as a tragedy, as an act of injustice where a completely innocent man was murdered? Jesus taught us to pray, Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those against us. As he hung upon the cross, that prayer took on a whole new meaning. Because at the cross, he didn't pronounce judgment. He absorbed it. Instead of saying, you're going to pay for this, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Instead of retaliating for what happened to him, he used that very act to reconcile us to himself. Evil was defeated and crushed through forgiveness. We have these glorious words in Romans 5, verses 10 to 11. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Through his death, through a horrible act of injustice committed against us. That is how we receive reconciliation. But the cross does not just remind us that God has made provision for the forgiveness of our sins, but it's also a reminder that as recipients of his grace and forgiveness, we have been called to forgive those who sin against us. Quoting Brian Zand again, he asserts radical forgiveness is what it means to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Radical forgiveness is what it means to take up the cross and follow Jesus. So, our application this week is pretty straightforward. Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to forgive? If there is, you can start the process by, number one, acknowledging honestly what's happened to you to God. Don't play down what happened to you. Don't minimize it. God gives you complete permission to bawl your eyes out. God gives you complete permission to swear, to curse, to rage, to weep. You can do all of those things in his presence. It's safe. Okay? So don't hold back. Come to God. And acknowledge what's happened to you, honestly. And number two, invite God to heal you. Invite God into that space. That's a very sacred moment. Invite God to come by His Spirit to heal you, to restore your broken heart. Ask God to pour out His love, His compassion upon you, His grace upon you. Remember, the goal is forgiveness, but to get there may take a while, so don't rush the process. And thirdly, when you're ready, and I don't know when you'll be, forgive. 
But keep in mind what I said earlier about what forgiveness isn't and is. Yeah? And there's a lot more to be said, but I think those three steps will be enough to get the process happening. Okay? So I hope it's useful. I hope it's practical. And I just want to stress again, forgiveness is a non-negotiable, not because God is God and you're not. Often that's how we think. I have to forgive. Otherwise, God has a big stick waving at you. Yeah, better. It's nothing to do with that. Forgiveness is for your benefit. It's for your sake. It's for your freedom. And God wants you to be free. Lord, we thank you for your teaching on forgiveness. It's not exhaustive. It's not meant to be. But we get the point that forgiveness, radical forgiveness, as modeled by you, Jesus, is the third alternative, is the radical alternative. Radical alternative in terms of of our freedom. And even non-Christian psychologists and psychiatrists are singing the same tune. They're saying the same thing to their clients. Actually uh, advocating the truth that you've been teaching all along. Lord, help us see that. Now to hang on to our bitterness, to hang on to acts of wrongdoing and not wanting to let it go only harms us. In fact, many of uh, our offenders are not even aware how tight and how upset we are. They're living their own life, carrying on. That's what irks us. We see them so happy. And we think, how could you be happy? You've just done a horrible thing to me. That's because they have no clue. Or they are simply narcissists who see nothing wrong in what they've done and what they have said. And Lord, you're saying to us, forgive so that you can have a future, so that you can be free from this ball, from this chain of bitterness. Convince us of that, I pray. Lord, help us to be real. Help us to come to you with with a complete awareness that you give us full permission to be ourselves, to be honest with you about our pain, our sorrow, our anger, our hurt. And Lord, to come and receive your healing, to come and receive your grace upon grace upon grace, your compassion and your love. Thank you, Lord. I commit this week to you, and know it might not be an easy week for some who have people in their mind that they know they need to forgive, but they're stuck. They don't know where to go, and I pray, God, that you will help them during this week in moving them forward from where they are today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.